Welcome to the Theory of DFS podcast. I'm Jordan Cooper, the co-author of the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports. It's 15-hour audio DFS masterclass. You can find a theoryofdfs.com. It's one week before NFL starts back up, so that means uh, Eric Beinfor will be back. We'll be reviewing our our, our play in a in small field, primarily uh, GPPs, talking about macro strategy, everything that you liked last season. But uh, sometimes you say it's uh, your results are all dependent on a one-week season, and that's why I have brought on... Uh, I would consider him one of the preeminent DFS teachers in the industry. Uh, formerly at Roto-Grinders, he's, he's the person that I learned how to play DFS from, in addition to uh, Jonathan Bales. Reading your NFL Edge column... Like it was like 95%, like it was, it was always, it was like 20,000 words and it's like 95% is like, uh, here, here's what's going on in the games. And there was like 5% of like, that's what I'm looking for. Like that, that, that game theory aspect of like, how do you play DFS as a game that, that, that helped me the most. And now you do uh, more of that on oneweeksseason.com. It's uh it's, it's another uh, two Jordans on the same podcast. It's a uh, JM Talim, JM to win. Uh, are, are, are you humbled by the fact that, you know, like, like I consider myself to be a, a good DFS teacher, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm using a lot of concepts that I first learned from exposure on, on your columns. I think one of the most interesting things, well, one of the most interesting things I want to get out of the way first for anybody watching on video, I, yes, I'm in my car. Jordan's got a green screen behind him, hundred percent professional. I've got two screaming kids in the house, so I'm uh, I'm recording from the car in the driveway today. Anyhow, um, the funniest thing you bring that up is that so when I came into DFS in 2014, well, I started in 2013 NFL season and then really got into it in 2015 during MLB and guys like Bales and CSU Ram, those guys had already been like OGs in DFS. So I've always felt uh, you know, I'm not like a super plugged in person. Like I don't read a lot of content or listen to a lot of stuff. So my, my bubble in my mind is like, oh, I'm a newer player. And so it was funny when I was doing, when I was running premium at Roto-Grinders, there were a lot of players that, you know, I was sending out content schedules and hadn't necessarily talked to these guys yet. And then they would email me and be like, oh man, like I learned DFS from your stuff. And it, that was kind of eye opening Cause it was like, wait, I'm I'm just one of the new guys, you know, and even like if I talk to Bales or CSU about stuff today, I still treat them like they're these OGs in the DFS industry who I learned a lot from. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's cool. And and it's cool to see like we've got a new guy in this year who's 20 years old. You know, he just started like legally playing DFS over the last couple of years. So it's cool to see like it just keeps growing and growing and new players keep coming in. So, uh, yeah, now we've got two OGs on this pod together. Right. Some people consider me an OG and I only started playing in October 2015, I didn't even start playing NFL until 2017. That because I, I primarily was a soccer DFS guy, and I I, I expanded to that. But uh, one thing uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a subscriber to one week season. I subscribe everywhere because I want in my style of play. I need to know what everyone else is doing more so than what I'm going to do. Uh, and also uh, your approach to playing DFS. It's kind of weird to say. You you mentioned me in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, like content where you go over the slates. Like I think a, a lot of your audio is even in the back catalog is worth more than anything else 
on just how to play DFS well, not just NFL DFS, but just DFS in general, how to think about the game at that we're playing a strategy game. We're not we're not trying to necessarily know sports or predict, you know, outcomes better than other people. But it it feels to me you you portray me as some eccentric maniac that it's like like, oh, I'm this wild genius <laughs> type of thing. But we don't play really any differently. I view it as uh, in high school, there were two honors programs like that. I, that I went, you know, they would, to, you had to choose between the two. Obviously I was, you know, smart in, in, in high school. There was the humanities program and then like the math and science program. So they had all this, you had tons of smart people, but you had ones that gravitated towards English lit, art history, philosophy. And then you had the calculus, physics, chemistry, computer science. It feels as if a lot of times in your content versus my content, or just the way we communicate and approach the game, is that you're talking, it seems like you're talking in front of the humanities people and trying to relate the concepts to them more in like letters and words and phrases and more, more creative aspects. Well, I'm kind of pretty much saying the same thing, but I'm talking in front of the, of the, the math geeks and, uh, and the computer people. And it's like, well, I need to relate everything in kind of like numbers and formulas and, and kind of variables, but like, we're not doing anything really anything differently than, than, than each other yet. It almost seems like you make it, you make it out that, that it, I, I, I've complimented you in that you play in the same way that sharp players play. It's just that you you get to it from the complete other angle. We both get to the same spot. You're using the same exact concepts. It's just that you view it in your head a little bit more from from that 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 like writer's creative perspective. Rather, even though like the formula you're using, if even though you're not using a formula, like ends up with the same answer that I'm that I'm getting also. Yeah, I think that's a a perfect analogy. And also, I mean your you're a comedian. So there's com comedy is fundamentally it's storytelling and it's, you know, pulling a thought through a thread in a story and piecing things together. And that's a lot of what DFS is too. So there's the creative side and the math side. And I think, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people recognize this because I am more focused on the storytelling and the creativity of DFS. But like I, I was hired to write math word problems when I was, I don't know what I was 10 years old or something like that. So, you know, you having that math, basis i was in i was in calculus and in the the humanity stuff you know like having that math basis is important one of the things that we've done on because i don't see dfs in that way right so when i come across players who see dfs in that way it it helps me see new things you know because you say the same thing but you say it differently and so that opens up like this little five percent here ten percent there that helps me to it like triggers thoughts it helps me get over my overthinking in places and so um we had a, this year in marketplace, we had a whole roster construction bundle of courses and, you know, Hilo is, is he's taking game theory courses at Yale and Harvard. He's very much into game theory and leverage and the strategy, but from a, like a deeply analytical and well-defined perspective. And then Zandemir is very data driven. And so it was interesting to see that in our courses, we were all kind of saying the same thing, but from very different angles. And so we kind of met in the middle, but our starting points were different. And, and what's really cool about that is I think a lot of, a lot of DFS players who see DFS the way I see it, aren't good at DFS because they're so focused on 
knowing the NFL well and thinking that they're just picking good players, that it ends up significantly hampering their ability to make money. And the worst thing is, and you and I have talked about this, is you get those rosters that cash too often in tournaments. And so you finish in the top 20% or the top 15% or the top 12%. And then you look at the roster and you say, okay, so I got five guys right. And if I had done this different in this spot and this spot, oh, I was two players away from a first place finish. But what you don't realize is that mathematically, like the difference between getting five out of nine right and seven out of nine right is like infinitesimally more difficult to get those seven out of nine right. And so if you're always focused on trying to pick players across your roster, what ends up happening is you're going to be good enough to cash in tournaments and think that you're just one or two right players away. And that effectively leads to you continuing down the same path and slowly bleeding out bankroll as you wait to have that week where you get seven, eight things right. The worst thing that can happen to you is get seven, eight things right, because then you have more money, you go up and buy in levels, and you just give it back more quickly to a sharper field of players. So understanding what DFS really is and what you're actually doing is is key. And that was one of the, I mean, obviously one of the reasons I started one week season was there's more upside in doing my own thing and there's a little bit more schedule flexibility, but more than anything, it was like, I wanted greater freedom to be able to explore what DFS is really about. Um, I think one of the things I respect about you is you've been able to pull that into your role. So you're, you know, you're kind of like, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to provide. Um, and if people don't want it, that's fine, but I'm going to do this here, wherever I am and tell people, it doesn't matter who you play, you know, just, just right. play wherever you want. Right. But, but, the, but want. the thing is, is that like, I, I, I listened yesterday. I listened to your entire, uh, everything I know about roster construction course, which is eight to nine hours long which is $39, and I think it's wildly underpriced. Uh, but I think oneweekseason.com is wildly underpriced as it is. But, hey, that means go, go pick it up, go pick it up. I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, i grandfathered in at some price that's so, so absurd that, like, I'm never going to cancel. Because uh, <laughs> I got in, like, the early bird of the early bird when you first launched, and I'm like, like, JM is an idiot for charging this little. You're, but you're paying, like... 29 bucks a year. Probably. That's that's exactly what I grabbed. Like, I'm not canceling. Right. I, 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 if I could get one extra little thing per year out of this, it pays for itself. Cause I'm playing, you know, $10,000 a volume a week. So like good. And it's a business expense, obviously. So I could write it off on the business, but like the, the type of, the type of word I'm looking through and it's like, uh, uh, DFS players who know nothing about the NFL consistently beat NFL experts who know the league inside and out. But why? Because DFS game is, is not a game of picking players. It's instead of a game of putting players onto better built rosters than the rosters that your opponents are building, which is very similar to me constantly saying lineups, not players, right? And play, you, you go into, there's one, there's one lesson. There's 19 lessons here. Uh, you go into one lesson where you, you're essentially talking about nodes. So this decision tree of if you put Derrick Henry in your lineup, that means you're assuming, because you're aiming for first place, that he's going to do well. So you're like, what correlates with Derrick Henry doing well? Well, something that other, you know, by the passing game not doing well, or the opposing passing game doing well. And then if Derrick Henry is 40% owned, well, that also means that the rest of your lineup has to include lower owned players to make up for the fact that Derrick Henry is so chalk. So when, if you're 
viewing your lineup from uh, one by one. A lot of people, that's how they build. They go, I'm going to put in this guy first and then in that guy and then this guy. Well, if you want to do lineups, not players, you have to think in the terms of, well, you could start from any point. You can pick literally every any player. That's what play whoever you want means. Pick any player in the player pool that has a projection of some type, right? A 3K player that's whatever. It doesn't matter. You could still play that guy that's going to be 1.1% owned. But now you know that, okay, because he's 0.1% owned, yet now you can play Christian McCaffrey. You could play Stefan Diggs. You could play some of the chalkier players. But if you start with the chalk, you know that you can't continue with the chalk. So that means you have to play different players. But that starting point is where, like, that's that's where the world is open. Creatively, you know, the world is open to you. But from my, my perspective, how I try to try to approach it is that I'm looking at, I'm trying to look at lineups holistically as a whole from the very beginning. So if you're doing it one by one, this is where I say like the humanities approach versus the kind of the computer science approach of I tra- either you train yourself to like not pigeonhole yourself into I got to play these players or you use a tool such as an optimizer or something to go, let me take a look at a multitude of different types of constructions. I don't even know what they are. I don't even know what they could be. I know I'm probably stacking this. I'm probably doing something like that. I probably can't have 180% communal of ownership. I probably don't want 40% communal of ownership, but I want to take a look at what's the range and what do these lineups look like so that when I look at them, I'm not pigeonholing myself to, well, this lineup has to have this guy or that guy. I'm like, oh, here's a lineup that has a projection of uh, 118 median and 76% cumulative. And I go, let me compare these lineups to other lineups. What what do those lineups have in common? Well, they all have, you know, three plus one stacks. So they have runbacks like this. It's like, well, what happens if I don't do a runback? Do I get lineups in that range that project the same and own the same where the correlation... Uh, may not even matter. Maybe those lineups are viable also. So like while you're, we're both, we're literally both saying the same thing, just depending on how you're coming about, which side of the spectrum you're coming through. Like I'm, I tend to go through the, the teaching people how to like, I don't want you to get stuck on playing one player at a time. So I kind of preach the, like use the tools to just like use, to look at lineups unbiased. Because you run you run ownership projections and through an optimizer, right? And get right. like a sense of what rosters are being spit out. And that's similar to what Xandamir does, as in like and I think that's one thing a lot of people don't understand about an optimizer, is it doesn't necessarily mean running an optimizer and then plugging in those lineups. It just means gathering an extraordinary amount of information in a small amount of time to where you can get a sense of not only what different rosters look like that week and how the different pieces fit together, but also what projections look like, what types of target scores you have to be looking to beat in that particular week, what types of rosters are going to be spit out most often by an optimizer, which allows you to see what types of rosters you're likeliest to have to try to beat in a tournament from people who just run the optimizer and put it in. And so those things are extremely valuable. And I mean, that's the same as like you read Hilo's stuff and he, he doesn't look at, ownership projections until Saturday night, but he writes his leverage piece based around how to play off of who the high-owned plays will be on Friday. So he knows who the high-owned plays are going to be based on the psychology of DFS players, and he writes an entire article around how to leverage off of those high-owned players 
without having looked at, at ownership projections. And so, and I think that that's one of the things that I think is so important for people to grasp is, and there's actually, a, there's another point even farther back that I want to get to, but one of the things that's so important for people to grasp is that, oh, I don't see the, the game of DFS the same way as JM, or I don't see the game of DFS the same way as Blender, so I won't pay attention to them. That's faulty thinking. Like, you can you and I are talking about how we approach things from kind of opposite ends of of this street, but we meet in the middle, right? And there are things that I can pick up from things that you say that I can, it's like tools I put into my toolbox for this journey. And same thing for you, like you pay attention to things that I say, other people say, because you can add little tools that help you along the way. And so recognizing that, okay, maybe I don't see DFS the exact same way this person sees it from a starting point but I need to get to the same end point this person's at. And can I incorporate from what they're saying into my journey to that end point? And going back farther, that end point is a first place roster. And I think that one of the things, if we look at DFS play in terms of like, what level are you on? Like, are you a level one player, a level two player, a level three player? Sometimes it's easy to move from one level to the next. And sometimes there's like a very narrow, think about the original Super Mario Brothers, right? You could jump from like level one, two up to level four, one. If you find this one little. Right, the pipe, you have to find the right pipe, the right green pipe, and you got through. And then you get through. And so that, that green pipe that takes you from level one to level four is understanding that you're actually playing for first place. And I think that that's something that, that is so obvious and fundamental and yet so overlooked by like literally 98% of the DFS field. So many DFS players are trying to just get players that they like onto a roster. They're never thinking about what does it take to get to first place? And that was one of the things that was so groundbreaking about the, the fantasy sports for smart people books that Bales was putting out back in 2014 was it was, drilling down into what it takes to get to a first place finish, but also helps people open their eyes a little bit to recognize, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be targeting. If you're not actually consistently thinking about first place, then you're just building rosters, A, and then B, you're also too happy when you cash. Like if you're just cashing, you I'm should not be disappointed in your right. week. And, <laughs> and if you finish in the top, 1% with 3% of your rosters and none of them get to first place, you should be less concerned about the fact that you made less money than you could have or should have that weekend and more concerned about the fact that, oh, look, I'm putting more than 1% of my rosters into the top 1% of tournaments consistently. That means the numbers are going to work out in my favor over time. And one other note on this. Okay, so the Patriots won six Super Bowls over 20 years. Now we've seen Tom Brady go and win another one. Uh, with the Buccaneers. So, okay, maybe, or they won five Super Bowls over those years. Maybe Brady's, uh, uh, they win six. I don't know. I'm a Patriots fan. They win, they win too also, many, too many. I'm a DFS writer, so I don't know anymore. Um, but if you looked throughout those, if you followed throughout those years, it was always like, oh, the Patriots championship window is now, and they should make these free agency moves in order to maximize this window. And the Patriots would never do it. And part of the reason was they were never trying to get the best team in the NFL. They just knew that if they consistently positioned themselves with one of the top 
eight to 10 teams. They were consistently going to be in the playoffs. And can, over time, enough things would break their way that they were going to win some Super Bowls. And so it's, it's, it's taking a broader view of things and saying, look, you can't just maximize your Super Bowl window and go win a Super Bowl. So if you instead take a 10-year view and say, hey, every year we're going to make sure we're in it, then you're going to be in it often enough that you're going to get those first place finishes. And so that type of thinking of just saying, look, let me make sure that I'm constantly putting myself in position to finish at a higher level, put a higher percentage of my rosters into those higher percentage spots in tournaments than you know the numbers say. So 3% in the top 1%. Eight, 10% of your rosters in the top 5%. Over time, that's going to start breaking your way and, and you'll get those first place finishes. So then you have a way to judge your process instead of just saying, did I cash this week? I'm excited because I cashed. I put together these players. I was right on the cut line and I got these points right at the end and doubled my money. And if I'd done these three things differently, I, I could have had a huge week. Stop with that thinking and instead say, okay, I want to get to first place. How do I judge if I'm on my path to first place? Well, by beating the odds, by beating the field over time. And then over time, you start getting those big payouts, those first place finishes. Right. Uh, well, I mean, in aiming for first place, it's a more of a matter of how to play the game well, because first place lineups don't have what is the most probable, right? I, I, say, I say this very often. Your goal is not to play the most probable lineup. It's to play the most profitable one, as if this slate would be played out a thousand times, 10,000 times, right? So what techniques can you use to exploit the field that have nothing to do with trying to predict 90th percentile outcomes, which no one, no, no matter how much, how much you watch film, no matter how much you study the NFL, there's going to be so much variance in a single game, a tip pass, a, a, a first half injury, you know, just, you know, just a quarterback that's off for a drive or two could dramatically change the outlook of a game. I had a conversation last year with, uh, with Scott Barrett, who is a mutual friend of ours, knows he'll know more about the NFL than I ever will. Okay. So I, I, I freely bow down to, to Scott on that. And we had a, we had a, he, he reached out to me because finding out about, you know, my crazy eccentric, we had it. Oh my God. How do you have a weird way to play DFS? And I basically, basically said like by default as a default strategy, I'm not saying this would be the perfect strategy, but here's how you could win a DFS contest. It's like, tell me who the chalk is. And they go, okay, it's Derrick Henry and it's uh, Devontae Adams. And I'm like, okay, so you're playing A.J. Brown and you're playing Aaron Jones. There you go. You now position yourself to, to win first place more often. And you go, well, how is that possible? Because you're playing players that are negatively correlated to what more of the field is playing. So when they when you gain points, they lose the chance of getting points. And more rosters in the in the contest, if Devontae Adams is going to be 30% owned and Derrick Henry is going to be 40% owned, like either you're playing for the Titans and the Packers to do horribly, or they still have 30 plus point totals, they're most likely going to get there. They just don't get there in the way that everyone thinks they're going to get there. You're going to play Tannehill plus Brown. You're going to, so, so Derrick Henry's sitting there with eight points, yet the passing game has five touchdowns. And instead of Adams, Rogers Adams, you play Aaron Jones and he has four touchdowns because Adams only has a 90 yard game. Doesn't have a horrible game. It's like, I'm not predicting that's going to happen at all. 
All I know is that I know what my opponents are doing. So if I just play what is negatively correlated to that, do you just do that? No. But that would be the simplest option. If you didn't know anything about NFL, if you didn't know anything about football, and you wanted to play DFS and say, I'm going to play large, large GP, even small field GPPs, and say, all I'm going to do is go and uh, and look at what everyone else is playing and then play something close to that, but just with the negative, just not play the opposite of, but the opposite isn't, a lot of people think, JM, the opposite of playing Devontae Adams is playing another high-priced receiver. Playing DeAndre Hopkins because right. he's right there. And right, which you can, which you right, can do, but you, you actually get more leverage by playing the negative correlation. And I'll put it like this. Uh, you watch, if you go watch like a 40-minute video of all of Mike Tyson's knockouts in his career, right? Like all of them came on combo punches. He's not just punching a guy and knocking him out. He's throwing a combo punch and knocking him out. And that's what that negative correlation is. You're not just saying, I hope I get a good score from this player. You're saying 30% of the field is trying to get a big score from this guy. So I'll take this guy because it's a combo punch. Like if Aaron Jones hits, that helps your roster move up and everybody else is moving down at the same time. So you get this combo punch where you're not just passing a chunk of the field because Devontae Adams failed and you faded him, but you're gaining that extra leverage. Devontae Adams moving down, you're moving up. It's like, you, like I say, you're pulling levers. So if this lever goes down, this lever goes up. And so then you say, okay, well, what happens here? Let me take advantage of that. And, and yeah, but what Scott about, would say to me, but JM, here's the, here's the pushback that you get from 97% of people that play DFS. I studied the matchup. The, the, right? Devontae Adams should eat against the secondary, right? Like, like I'm conceding, like, I, I will literally say, like, the most probable outcome, right, is that Devontae Adams has 180 yards and three touchdowns. Like, most likely, that's why he's 30% owned, because everyone sees, most the, the most people, the field sees that this is, a, this, this is a great shot at a very high score. But, what's the probability of that? Like, pe- people don't don't bring it down to a probability. That, to me, I that where we disagree. Okay, so we've been agreeing on how we play, but there's there are things that I. It's one of those things where I get what you're saying, but I don't think you. I don't think you stress it often enough. What when you talk about projections, a lot of times you you talk about what what we we consider the fragility of projections, where. Someone's median projection is 16.28, and it's like, well, it could, well, technically it's not that. It's a range of outcomes of like 8 to 32. That's really what a projection is. So the median is just a 50th percentile, like 50% of the time. We don't know if it's going to happen today. So when you bemoan projections, you're really bemoaning the same thing that I bemoan, is that just going purely by medians doesn't, doesn't do it. All, the, all it is is it's a, it's a curve, a, a range of outcomes on a curve. We're looking for 80th percentile outcomes. That'll obviously it'll happen 20% of the time. The difference is, is that the projection system, if it's accurate and back tested, is already weighing all of the elements that you'd be that that could be weighed quantifiably with the, the game at hand. So it's using the math and all the data that you could possibly have to create that range of outcomes. It's not gonna now I, I know what you're gonna say. 
And I'm going to. You know, I don't know what you do. Let's hear it. What am I going to say? <laughs> you, you, you're you're going to talk about well the extra five percent of knowledge that you have. You're able to now find more likelihood of of these 80th percentile outcomes. And what I'm going to say is that players' ranges of outcomes aren't normally distributed. So if you're treating them normally distributed, you're also doing it poorly also. But once you, what, I'm doing the same thing as you, other than the fact of when I, when, I'll, when I will read your analysis, which, like I said, you know the NFL five times more than I do. I'm not saying I don't watch football. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like Zandemir, who may not even turn on a game whatsoever. Uh, but when I read your stuff, all I'm saying in my head, like we made the example before with the humanities class versus the computer science class, is like, okay, I agree with you. Put a number on it. Put a probability on it. Oh, this is how this offense should work with this coach and whatever. And I'm like, okay, how often does that happen? Now, if you tell me it's 72%, fine. Okay, put a, put a number on it. It's not going to be 100. It's not going to be zero. But put give me a number. Now go to the next game. Give me a pr- probability of outcomes of that. Like, once you condense it down to numbers, then I can now compare it to what the field's going to do. But if you don't give me a number, all you're doing is relying on the fact that, like, well, I know better. It's like, well, how much do you, like, can you quantify that into into a number? Because once you could quantify it into a number, then I could just remove all of football and just make lineups based on those numbers because there's no bias in that. You had a last year with Deontay Johnson, which I agreed with, that because of his lack of a sample size, uh, Deontay Johnson, uh, based on just the data we had, was typically not projecting as well as he probably should be. But his range of outcomes was still there. It's just that, like, his median shouldn't have been 12. His median his median was 12, but his ceiling shouldn't have been 28. It should have been, like, 34. Like, his di- his distribution of outcomes should have skewed further to the side. But, mo- a lot, like, the Blitz still had it. at Like, Deontay Johnson still projected ceiling-wise very similarly to how you described it. But his median was still based on, on an average which is obviously going to be lower based on the data that we have. So that's where I come from a disagreement that we're both doing the same. Like I said, we're both doing the same thing, but you're kind of disagreeing sometimes with, uh, well, some of these things can't be accounted for in projections. And I'm arguing that they are, they just may not be accounted for in the median of that projection. I mean, obviously you and I are like standing 90% on the same footing. Like right. our Venn diagram overlaps Yeah, but it's a, a show. Lot. We got to disagree for entertainment the, purposes. The one, <laughs> the one place where I see a major edge in understanding things on a deeper level, because when you talk about the research and the matchups, I think that what, what happens is, especially, especially people who write an enormous amount of content, because I was in that box for several years is you get less time to watch the games and more time to stare at your screen and notes and research and numbers. And a lot of that number, a lot of those numbers is small sample size data of things that happened in the past being given to you without context. So the people, this isn't talking about projection systems. This is talking about people who know the NFL really well. A lot of times they know it really well based on a player's measurables and based on the this cornerback's PFF grade and this, that, and the other thing in this matchup. And as you alluded to earlier, once you watch the game, there's so much chaos in the small sample size of a single NFL game that a tipped pass and early fumble completely changes the way that these two teams approach the game, right? 
where I feel like the research has an edge or the understanding has an edge over the projection systems and where where you can leverage additional knowledge is understanding the coaches and the teams because so it's kind of like saying not picking players for rosters, right? But building better rosters, not paying attention to individual matchups, but paying attention to the macro environment of this game. How does this coach like to win games? And what will that lead to if, if these things happen in this game? How does this coach use players? And so as you understand that, because the NFL is so unique in that we have 40 seconds between each play and a coach is on the sideline making the decision on both sidelines, making the decision. And so it does help you to gain an additional edge. What I'll also say is last year when you and I were talking about this, there was a point where you said, I agree with you that that's true in theory, but the amount of additional time that I would put in trying to understand that doesn't significantly improve my ROI to where I can or need to justify that. What I'll say to that though is, you're reading the NFL edge. You're still picking up that stuff anyway. You know what I mean? Like there's, you don't have to do that research yourself. People are doing that research for you. And so it's just valuable to have that extra background. And I don't think it's vital to winning in DFS. Neither is using a projection system vital. If that's not the way your brain works, because that's not the way my brain works. I see things differently than that and still end up at the same point, right? I don't, it, it hurts me to put a number on it in the way that it helps you. Yeah, but to in put your head, you're technically it. are putting a number on it. Sure, sure, you sure. You may not put and, an exact number it. on it. I see it in colors. I don't really see it in <laughs> colors, but you know what I mean? Like, like I see it from the way it all sort of blends and balances together. Um, and so, yeah. And so I do think that there's, your case makes a lot of sense, but also if you, and, and if you're trying to get to a point where you know the NFL better, that can introduce bias that actually hurts you from building better rosters. But if you can blend it all together, there are certainly some edges that can be gained from understanding the teams, understanding the coaches, understanding, you know, how these games are likely to play out a little bit better than the field would, which is, I mean, obviously why the NFL edge is presented in the way it's presented, not like this player's matchup against this cornerback and their, their height and their speed and all that, but instead like how this team's going to try to win, how this team's going to try to win and what that means for the likeliest game environment, because fantasy points are produced from a game on a field, not from information in an article or game on the field a little bit better, certainly gives a little bit of an edge over people who don't understand how to put those pieces together. Yeah, but uh, my, my argument in return would be that's what we have betting lines for. And, the, and, the, and the, the betting markets, especially for the NFL, are the most efficient sets. Closing lines for NFL on, on sides and totals are... are I mean, pro sports bettors would say they're un, they're they're unbeatable. The the R of them, if you could go back forty years, like they're going to be the most accurate metric on, on, in the long term. Maybe not in a given week. Different games will go up and down, but on the long term. So when when it comes to uh, what will be more efficient, like you like you mentioned before, uh, getting to the same place in a different way, me. I want to get to the same place in the quickest way possible, right? So if a total is 56 and this total is 52 and this total is 40, like the likelihood of uh, of a game going off for 60 plus points is going to most likely happen more than not likely happen in the higher total games than the lower total games, regardless of how the coaches think or play or whatever. 
all of that information on how the coaches could possibly win this game are already in the betting line. I mean, they're already, people are betting on that. If people thought that this was going to be a shootout, the game would have a 49 total and not a 42 total, right? It doesn't mean a 42 total can't shoot out, but if you go look at the past data, that it's it's significantly less. It actually goes down much more exponentially down the scale. But what ends up happening a lot of times is people focus on the 56 total game and don't realize that that, that game shouldn't be twice as owned as the 49 total game and the 48 total game and the 48 and a half. Like there are games that are like on the line that everyone focuses on like one or two games and like the ownership tends to go more there, but then the ownership on these like three other games are too low. And then at that point, you're like, I'm going to bet on that game environment. Just like you said, like not going to pick players, just going to go like, I'm going to I'm going to go quarterback, two wide receivers and a run back out of this game. And, uh, whichever way that I want to, right. You have projections. You can see which ones are a little bit better than others, but the ownership is there. Like, what is it if if the inf- if the information like I talk a lot about information redundancy and the more and more if you talk to many sharp players and you could probably you you probably agree with me to some extent even though you write a lot of content you would have to you have to agree with me that the more and more you simplify your process the the hot, the more return you get right you 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 must have seen that over time of playing DFS that the more you weed out and go what is the most important and then double down triple down on that, you get so much more return than finding the extra 2% edge that like, well, if I get everything here, that's majorly important, right? That 1%, 2% edge isn't going to ever be worth the time. Like it's not even worth the time to do anymore. I think one of the easiest ways to like process this and start understanding it is to study first place rosters. One of the things, you know, you talked about those high total games. If a game goes for 56 points, that's not winning you a tournament, especially if it was projected for 56 points. What what wins you a tournament is a team scoring 35 points, 40 points, and you having multiple pieces from that game, not having one player from that game, but multiple pieces from that game. And so, yeah, understanding also what you're looking for in terms of if a game has, if we're in week eight or nine, because you know what else is pretty efficient is DraftKings pricing. Mm-hmm. So if we're in week eight or nine and you have a game with a 56 point total and high ownership, because that's what everybody's being drawn toward and the players are priced appropriately because we're deeper into the season and you have another game with a total of, of 49, 50, 51, whatever it might be. And those players aren't priced as high and they're going to be lower owned. If that game goes for, if if that game goes into its, you know, 80th percentile score, it's 90th percentile outcome, you end up with this one team scoring 35, 40 points, 45 points, and you get all of that where everybody else feels happy with their solid scores where you're really just getting the bare minimum you needed for the price tags you paid on these players. And so understanding too, like what you're targeting for a first place finish is outlier outcomes. You can't get, you can't reasonably calculate 250 points onto a DraftKings roster without outlier outcomes. And so if you can bet on a game and get that game right and get three outlier outcomes from one bet from getting this one game right, that's so much better than trying to pick three different players from three different spots who could have an outlier game. And so understanding, like you said, simplifying your process and also simplifying your thought processes. What's interesting is 
a lot of times to get to that that little like bullet point that helps summarize all of your thoughts on a topic it sometimes takes you starting at the top of the funnel and you you have to learn things along the way sort through your thoughts overcome your biases overcome your preconceived notions about things and then you get down to the bottom of the funnel and you have that one little point that helps you okay now this is this illuminates everything i have this one simple step in my process but you didn't start with a simple step in the process you started with everything that led to that simple step in the process that allows you to consciously and intelligently follow that process knowing that you're making good decisions i say all that because it, it can sometimes be a process to get to a really sharp condensed process simplified process it's not like you just say okay these are the five things Blender does. I'm going to do them. If you don't have that base of understanding, if you don't have the roots underneath that, then you're never going to be able to stick with that or properly follow through with that. I did that when I first started reading Bale's stuff. I sort of switched up the way I was playing MLB and didn't really have the deeper understanding of why I was doing things this way. And so that that put me in a position where I wasn't able to explore the nuances of it and and make the right decisions in these little places that are the difference between a good set of rosters and a bad set of rosters. So obviously if somebody is 45 minutes into listening to you and me, they're not doing it just for entertainment. They're doing this as part of that process to understand these things and, and get to that simplified process. But uh, I said that to say like people need to recognize it's a journey. It's not just like, okay, I hear this light clicks and I do it. There are steps to understand beneath all of this so that it really opens up how all of this works. And again, I think anybody who's who's 45 minutes into listening to this, they're grasping that, they're putting in that time. But I, I think it's important to highlight that because you do need that deeper understanding of the the why behind all of this so that you can consciously go out and apply all this yourself. Yeah, but I, I, I push back on that. I don't think you need to know the why. I don't think you need so to know you, the why at all. Tell me how, tell me how somebody puts, I, I don't, I'm I'm always, so you know this about me you're looking for entertainment disagreements. I'm always looking for common ground, right? So let's find that right here. How are you, how is somebody who's never played DFS and they're going to come in and apply this and understand it without the levels of understanding that allow them to do this? Well, as a game, I, I, I believe that uh, any game player could play DFS much quick, get better at DFS much quicker than anyone that knows anything about sports because you don't need, because I argue because they're a game player because they right, have but that, those but that's layers what I'm saying. I don't need to know the why. Like like JM, for instance, I there I could go. I mean, I I played most of these sports without knowing the team. I mean, like I haven't played fantasy football before 2017 since I was like a teenager, since I was 20 years old. So like when I say that I'm not a sports person, it's not that I'm not a sports person. It's just that other than soccer, I never fought. Like after 2003, I really didn't care about sports anymore. And if it wasn't for DFS, I wouldn't be watching most of these sports because I frankly don't care about them. Uh, is that if if I if from a mathematical perspective, okay? So now we're gonna get into just pure purely math. I'm gonna make a very extreme example. If I told if I told you that there was a variable that had a 0.97 R to fantasy performance, which would be just absolutely would be I mean, it's not one, but it would be fucking unbeatable. Uh, and that has been proven, back-tested over the largest sample sign possible. Do I need to even tell you? Did if As long as I gave you that, 
Do I need to know why that is? Do I need to know why? Do I need to know why? If if high total games are more likely to shoot out, are more likely because the betting lines are efficient. They're, the R is high. Not, like, not 0.97 high, but one of the highest you could possibly have of all metrics in all of you could possibly research in DFS. And it tells me that Team A versus Team B, it's the... Panthers and Jets, and the current total is 77. Now, I'm making an obviously ridiculous, I'm doing it for, on purpose. And you look and you go, these teams suck. Why the hell is there a, this, this total shouldn't be 77. This should be a 42 total, because based on what I know of the NFL, it should be 42, not 77. But the betting market, which has Tons of people betting real money, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The, the total opened at 74 and actually went up to 77. And you're sitting there going, well, based on the way the coaches, you're trying to tell me the why. Like, all I need to know is that this game has a 77 total. I'm stacking. Like, do I even need to know? if, As long as you tell me that the metric is the highest correlation to what I'm aiming for, do you... do? Now, would I be interested in knowing why? Sometimes we have totals of games that, like we had, we had a total, I remember there was one game that there, there was a total of 51 that I look and I go, why is this game so high? Like I would think it's 44, 40, it was some, some type of like Lions, Bears type of game or something. And I'm like, I was shocked that it was 50, it, it moved up to 51. And I'm like, I thought this would be a 44 game, but I'm sitting there going, maybe I should read JM's NFL Edge. Maybe to figure out why this total is so high that maybe I'm missing something. But from a DFS perspective, what the hell do I care why? All I know is that the betting lines are are more efficient than anything else. So if, it's, if they say it's a 51 total, I, I'm going to be looking for players in that game. So like that's what I mean by why. If you well, have yeah. the variables, why do you need to know the why? Technically. We found our we found our common ground here though because I'm talking about a different why than the why the game totals and why the projections. I'm talking about the why these rosters are supposed to be put together in this way. And so you say like a a, a game a game player like take Beep I'm a Jeep who's a board national board game champion can come in without an understanding of the sports and dominate people who have an understanding of the sports because they understand how games work. They understand the strategy behind games. What I'm saying is somebody who's coming from the other side where they've played fantasy, season-long fantasy, and they understand fantasy football as knowing who the good plays are, and now they're coming into DFS, in order to get a process that helps them to produce results, they have to understand why their process is being built a certain way, why they're taking the steps they're taking, why these things are valuable and important. And so they have to get to that level of knowledge and understanding that the the game player is already entering with. They have to get to the point where they can overcome their biases and overcome the way that they're best in order to become the type of DFS player they need to become. And so that's the type of why I'm talking about is understanding why these things work, understanding why this is how first place finishes are created helps to create that light bulb moment for people where they realize, oh, okay, so I'm not just trying to pick an optimal lineup. And you know what? One of our biggest edges in DFS is that so much of the most popular content is quietly focused on cash game plays. <laughs> People don't realize that like, even when I did the, the round table with Levitan, 
you know, most of those conversations were about this player on this team and his usage in this matchup. And what we're trying to do in those conversations is get down to a finer point between this guy who's going to be 30% owned in a tournament and this guy who's going to be 25% owned in a tournament and figure out which one is the better player. But also over here, there's this guy who's going to be 3% owned in tournaments and is like the third guy in that list and isn't 10 times less likely to have a big game than the guy who's 30% owned, right? You got the guy who's 30% owned, the guy who's 3% owned. That's technically saying that this guy who's 3% owned is is 10 times less likely to have a slate winning score, but he might be, you know, this guy has a 30% chance of a slate winning score. This guy has a 25% chance of a slate winning score. So the math there works out so well. And I think that that it's hard for people who have been in fantasy for a long time, and especially people who have dominated their leagues by knowing all the teams and players better. It's hard for them to take that jump over to DFS and recognize that that's not what DFS is. Now, if you're playing cash games, there's a lot of value. Of course, in cash games, you could just find out who the highest owned players are, figure out how to piece them together, and you're probably in good shape. But there's a lot of value in in tournaments in breaking your thinking to where you recognize, oh, okay, I'm playing the wrong game. And once I start playing the right game and understanding what that right game is, that's where my edge is. It's not in knowing the players. The the There are little things that you might throw in there that help you in that the game mode. There are little things I might throw in there that help me in that game mode, whether it's knowing the coaches a little bit better, this, that, or the other thing. But the foundation you have to start from is knowing that what game you're playing I think that's where you and I connect so well. No, like, no, I, I agree. No, we're what, what approaching I'm... things from different ends, like we're both talking about how to play this game. And I think that's an overlooked topic that's it's so dramatic. That's all I talk about, but that's all I talk us... about. But the but the the, the general the, po- the the broader point that I'm making is that the why that I'm talking about, which is different than the why that you're talking about, we're, we both agree with your why. The why that I'm talking about is don't you believe that so many, that, the bulk, the majority, overwhelming majority of people that play DFS, Joe Q public, or even the regular player that uh, they, they play often, but they just, they're not profitable players. Everything, there's so much obfuscation on football rather than, than like how to play the game better that the people, like, I mean, it's the, my bugbear on why I, you know, when I do Roto-Grinder shows, I do the pregame. Sh- I do the strategy-based shows. I don't do the before lock. Who do I play? Type of shows because, like, let what 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 information can I tell you? All I'm doing is looking at at math. So like, you could look at the same math that I'm looking at. Like in a vacuum, this guy projects for twelve. That guy projects for ten. Play the guy at twelve. You're not giving me any other context on what contest you're playing, what site you're playing, what and and there's nothing to go by it. But people are 97% of content, 99% of content is like, is is this game going to shoot out? Is this guy going to have a good game? Are they going to get 20 touches? Are they going to, it's like, like that you could, once you distill that down to a number, like to me, that's, that's not, that's not the hard part. To me, that's not the hard part. That's the, the people are spending, like people ask me, like uh, every NFL season, I get, I get. 20, 30, 50 times. I mean, now even more with doing the course, they will ask me how, what is my, what is my weekly process on 
building DFS lineups, right? Well, my weekly product, like, what do you do on Tuesday? What do you do on Wednesday? What do you do on Thursday? And I said, said last season, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that I do the advanced sports analytics show on Friday, I wouldn't, I would, the only, t- I would look at a slate uh, on Sunday when it comes out, put in a dummy lineup so I could set up my head to heads. And then until, uh, until like Saturday night, I don't, I have no fucking clue what I'm, I, I, I don't even, I mean, I may be thinking through, I, I'm listening to content going, okay, maybe, maybe this game may be more wrong than I think it's going to be that type of thing. But like what, what research I'm like, it's like, yeah, when do you, when do you look into the, the matchup stats? I go, I don't look at any of that. It's like, do you look at any NFL stat? No, I don't look at any, any NFL stats at all. I go, it was like nothing. I said, not even like how many snaps? I go, no, because I don't look at snaps. I don't look at targets. I don't look at like, that's why I have a projection system. It's already doing that for me. So like, like, is it going to be perfect? No, of course. I don't admit that it's going to be perfect. No projection system's perfect, right? Everyone has its flaws, but it's going to be better than I can trying to spend 70 hours trying to do all that. It's like, it's worthless to do. Like it's already being, it's already being done for me. Okay. So like, so what, what, what do I have? What is my process? Other than show up Saturday night when I have the most, I want to get to the point where I have the most amount of information to work with. Sometimes uh, we have issues with injuries that at 1130 Eastern, we're going to find out about. That is Julio Jones going to play. Is Ezekiel Elliott going to be scratched for no fucking reason? And Tony Pollard becomes the value play on the slate that not enough people play. Like, I'm, from a game theory perspective, I, I want the most amount of information which doesn't happen until 1130. Like, why should I be, what other process? Everything's going to be done for me. Then I just have to build better lineups, better rosters than my opponents. So when I, when I tell people my process in total, and I build, and I play massively multi-entry, so I'm building like 250, 350 lineups because I'm playing uniques and all these things. I go, eh, two hours. And they look at me like I have 400 heads. And they go, I spend 20, I, during my work hours, I look at the fantasy outsiders and I look at BFF this and I go, I go, yeah, yeah, none of that matters. I said, said, if you can't build good rosters, no matter what you do, you're not going to win. So like, like what, why don't you, why don't you outsource if it, all, all of that stuff or build your own model if you want to do that. Uh, and then, and then just show up with all the information and then just build lineup one, build lineup two. If you build I started building with people. Oh, I don't, I don't, I can't build 300 lineups. It's like, well, I, I had, when I started playing NFL, I played three lineups. I played five lineups. Like, how are you going to learn how to build 300 good lineups if you can't build one good lineup or build three good lineups or build five? Like, I didn't touch an optimizer for two and a half years. So do that. Build line, build lineup one and go, how do I win this large field GPP? Build lineup one. How is another way I could win the large field? Build lineup two. And you already have the numbers. In front of you, if you subscribe to any site, one week season, you have projections that it's going to be accurate enough that anything that you read throughout the course of the week, any podcast that you listen to, they go, oh, this got to play Marcus Callaway, 3,400. You got to play. He's the number one wide receiver. You got it. And you're going to hear it throughout the, that's, yeah, that's the reason why he's like the best point per dollar wide receiver play in the projections. Like you know, all that, all that time is spent from Tuesday through Saturday. It's already in that, like, just sort by the point per dollar column. It's like, most likely any projection system is going to, if you heard it 800 times, it's it's, it's not like, oh, he projects poorly, but everyone loves him. It's like, of course, it's going to be the same thing. So like, JM, that's, that's the type of thing of like, like, are people not, are the vast majority, obviously people that subscribe to one week season aren't doing this, hopefully. But you also mentioned in your course that even in your discord, like people that pay for your stuff, 
are still half the time are asking about, do I play this guy or this guy? And so that's why, like, are, is, is there too much obfuscation on, like, figuring out the plays where we're in 2021 and there's, there's so much information out there already that, like, like there's no, there's no edge. To, anything that you look at is going to, everyone's going to see the same thing. Uh, if you're not looking at that, 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 that's where some of the edge comes from. Plenty of deadliners of people that don't realize it. But that's, that's my, that's my, like, why do we need to know the why? Do you, do you, I, I view it as there are people that have not changed their worldview on what game we are playing. And in order to take that journey, like you said, to get through that pipe in Super Mario Brothers, like we and you could go from level one to level four and go, fuck level two and three. I, I don't need to know level two or three because I could get to four right away and fuck why, why two or three even exist. But some people may, what I explain on Roto-Grinders content, because we do MLB and NBA and I do stuff like that. I say, I use the projections, but if you feel more comfortable and you don't, you don't want to just look at it as numbers, use the humanitarian, uh, humanities approach. Well, cheese, he has an MLB article. Everything that he says in that article pretty much agrees with the projections, but he explains why the projections are the way that they are. All I'm saying is that his content is great, but I just, I don't need to know why when I already have the number. So like I, I'm perfectly comfortable with just letting go of the wheel and go like, let, let, let the, let the, let everyone else do the work for me. And, and it's, it's going to, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to rationalize to myself that some, some player was a good play because 17 people said so with 800 stats in an article when on Saturday night I could show up and see how he projects. And like, I got there. I got there 50 times faster than you did. Yeah. You said a lot of valuable things. Two things that stand out to me is one, you talking about you built rosters first, you know, like you spend time building rosters. So you understand, you gain that understanding of what a winning roster looks like and how it gets put together. So you, it's almost like you played levels two and three in order to understand how to beat level four. And now you can just jump from level one to level four because, you know, you found the shortcut. The other thing I wanted to ask you is you, you listen to stuff throughout the week. You read stuff throughout the week. Um, Cubs fan is the same way. Cubs fan, his whole weekly process. So anyone who doesn't know Cubs fan, he's uh, quiet in DFS, but you know, he's, he has not that quiet. Plus, I, I, a lot of sharp players know who he, know who he is. Plus, you know, hundred thousand dollar, caches he has 20 plus live final appearances millie, millie maker win and his process is he reads the nfl edge listens to sirius xm throughout the week and occasionally asks questions about players that nobody's thinking about and by the end of the week you know he's in first place in some tournament and there's an element of be oh and, and he uses the gpp ceiling tool on one week season he uses the blitz so the projection systems, the NFL edge, listening to stuff throughout the week, um, the listening to stuff throughout the week for him, a lot of it is understanding, I guess I'll say how strong the cognitive biases will be among the community. So is that kind of yes. the same thing for you? It's not, it's not just, oh, this guy's going to be 30% owned in this, in ownership projections, but like everybody's talking about this guy, everybody's emphasizing what a great play he is. 
So now I can use, I can, that information is stronger for me to play off of. Right. Ownership projections, a lot of times on most sites are done that like that they have, they have the largest amount of compounding errors that could be possible. So like on, on a, on a player's projection, it's hard to, it's hard to be that off, right? From a median perspective, obviously we're talking about a range of outcomes, but ownership, we have much more, uh, constraints on ownership. So like if, if Christian McCaffrey, like we take this coming week, if we, we say, if we let's use the, I always have to exaggerate. So people get the point. If we say that Christian McCaffrey is 50% owned this week, if we project that and we project Dalvin cook is going to be 50% owned this week. These are both like nine K plus running backs. Okay. If we're correct on that, that means three K wide receivers are going to be heavily owned also based on just how the salary works out. Kyle Pitts at 4,400 is probably going to be way more, is going to be owned more than Kelsey is because Kelsey's 8,300, right? So the two, those two guys at the running back position, if we say Devontae Adams is going to be 50% owned, like, like that means these, these line, these rosters are going to look more like barbells, right? These 5K or 6K guys are going to be way low owned and, those guys are going to be high owned. These guys will be low owned. Let's say uh, we project both of those running backs at 50% owned and they end up being 15% owned. Well, now, like, the ownership of all the other players in the entire player pool is going to be fucking way off. I mean, so dramatically off. Now, now you're going to be building lineups thinking that you're, that you're like, oh, I got leverage. I'm fine and like that. And you're like, holy shit. I should have been playing the barbell lineups because they're actually under-owned. Now, that's obviously a dramatic example. But when, if you're off, if those high-owned players are off by, the more and more they're off, the more and more it compounds to the rest of the player pool. So I could look at, someone could go in and use an aggregate projection set and run through mathematically what these ownerships should be. But I also have to realize that People aren't computers, right? Like there's there's there, there's co- there are cognitive biases, human psychology, that a, a an ownership algorithm. People are going to defy projections. People are going to going to say, well, since since Evan Silva said this, I'm going to play. We had one week where Adam Troutman was so much like two, four times higher owned than I projected it to be, and I'm listening to everything, and I'm going, why is this guy 27 percent owned? I thought it would be 10. Right, I thought it's like okay, he probably only should be four, but he's going to be ten, and he ends up being twenty-seven percent owned as a punt tight end, and I go, well, that means a lot more, a lot more lineups have punt tight ends than I thought that it were going to be, and guys like Waller and Kelsey actually went way more under owned than I thought that it was going to be, and I look at my lineups and I go, shit, I should have played more Kelsey, shit, I should have played more Waller, but I wouldn't have known. Even the difference, if I didn't listen to anything, I'd be looking at a 10% Adam Troutman ownership going, why the fuck is he 10% owned? And it turns out he was even more owned. So like, to me, that's that's the reason why I listen to content. Since my approach comes from exploiting the field, I need to, I, I you focus on the coaches, on like the more probable, if you could change, if you could go from, let's say, uh, let's say the field believes that this game environment has a 38% chance of being a shootout. 
And you could find some keys and thing. You could dive really deep into your knowledge and improve and go, really, it should be 42%. Like, that's an edge, right? By knowing it's going to shoot out 4% more often, right? So I'm doing the same thing when it comes to, to ownership, going, if I could study the field better, right? I may not know the difference between 38 and 42% chance of shooting out. I already got, I'm fine with being a little off there. I'm not as fine being off on like, I, I'm much more, I, I care more about it. Is Derrick Henry going to be 30% owned or 36% owned? And it doesn't sound like that big of a difference, but it, the way I play, it matters massively because then it means if he's more owned than I should, then I should have less of him, more of the negatives. And also means that if he's more owned, I should have more mid-range wide receivers because they'll be more cheap wide. Like I, like it affects so much other stuff that I think I study the field the same way that you study the NFL. And it's an understanding that you're playing against other players. That's right. what DFS is. It's a game of playing against other DFS players. It's not a game of projections and, and predicting outcomes better than other people. It's a game of outmaneuvering other people to that first place finish. So the more you know, the more you have your opponent's playbook, the more you know what they're going to do, better equipped you are to make those sharp decisions for you is it is it do, how do you put a number on that uh, as far as like you said 30 percent owned to 36 percent owned the difference how do you put a number on that I, I just feel i just i just change it i just i just but i mean it's a, it's also in cash games it's a type of thing like dude like you play cash games often enough it's like like what why do i subscribe to all the sites that have projections because people misuse them so it's like, okay, I could go on Sunday morning to ETR. I could go to Sunday morning on to Awesome O, Roto Grinders, anywhere, and go, if people are just going to plug in the top optimal lineup, well, wouldn't I want to know what that is? I'm playing against other people, right? Are people going to be using these projections to make their GPP lineups, especially people that are not utilizing the tools correctly, so they're making more median lineups than they're making, like, good leverage correlated lineups, I could look and I go, well, did, did this site projects this guy for this much? And sometimes, sometimes things are off. Sometimes, you know, I'm looking at the blitz and the blitz is like high on, much higher on Terry McLaurin than like every other site. So it's like, well, this Terry McLaurin ownership of 14% may not be as high as 14% because Anyone that's looking at Osimo, anyone that's looking at all these other sites, anyone that's looking at one week season, you look one week season. He's not in your player grid. He's not in in anything like that. And I look and I go, I think he's more likely to be eight percent owned than fourteen percent owned. So then once I bump him down to eight percent owned, I got to move other people up, right? So like, I'm not looking at other sites to get information on who to play. I'm looking at other sites because I know that other people are looking at it as a way of who to play. So wouldn't I want to know what they're re I, I'm listening to the Fantasy Footballers podcast, which is a more mainstream DFS podcast. Am I listening to an hour of that because I want them to, to, to know how to play? No. I, I know that that 100,000 people listen to that podcast. And if, you know, some person has some weird take or something like that, that may, that may actually affect ownership. Maybe not in that one instance, but I may hear that multiple times and go, well, the ownership that I have on this player is is most likely wrong. Or or am I in a bubble? And like, yeah, certain people are talking about it, but 
I don't think people are going to go there. I don't. I think people are still going to be forced into this type of construction. To when 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 people ask me about my process, that's more. Like, I'm spending much more Tuesday. I'm listening to podcasts. Wednesday, I'm li- like you said with the Cubs fan thing. I'm. That's what I'm doing. But like, I'm not looking at stats. I'm. Uh, eventually, I'm. I'm like absorbing. Obviously, I'm listening to shows. Then I'm, I'm going to absorb. He's seven for twenty in the last whatever, and he has a seventeen percent target share. And because you listen, but it's. It's, I'm, I don't care about that. I just care about the, if, if my opponents are listening to this, why, but if, I'm like Bill Belichick with the, the, the camera. I like, why wouldn't I, why, why don't I want to film practice than my opponent's practice? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Um, yeah. And, and it all goes back to understanding what type of game you're playing. I think, you know, another thing that I talked about a lot. Uh, for years was I bi- built my bankroll. I had some early, hits and then transition immediately to high stakes, high dollar, small field tournaments. And what I always said was by focusing on one lineup a week in the game changer where I'm competing against 100 to 300 people, I'm competing against the same 100 to 300 people every week. And so it was so easy for me every week to go through the standings and get a sense of how are these people building rosters? I'm not concerned with I'm not concerned with how is Brandon Adams building rosters, how is Bales building rosters, how is Osmo building rosters, so much as if I can go through and see how is this field as a whole attacking these slates, what does ownership do on these high certainty, high priced plays, right? Like a lot of times a guy who's 25% owned in the Millie Maker might be 40% owned in a high dollar tournament. And so it's what I call bankroll building tournaments. And you can do it even at you know, it, you scroll way down in the DraftKings lobby, you start finding all these great tournaments. It's like a, a $12 tournament with 500 people in it, a $33 tournament with a thousand people in it, whatever it might be, right? You can, you can find these tournaments where you're not competing against a hundred thousand rosters when you're still trying to learn how to put all these pieces together. You can go down there, actually study the player pool each week and get a sense of how these people are building their rosters that's another way to figure out what your opponents are doing and then outmaneuver them. Because ultimately, re- regardless of what information helps you to make the best decisions and put the best rosters together, what you're doing is competing again. You're not trying to capture X number of points. You're trying to beat everybody else. You're competing against everybody else and trying to get that first place finish. That's the piece that most people are missing and that just because of the fundamental nature of the way people think and the and the overlap between season long fantasy and DFS where season long it is more important to know who the good plays are because you're dealing with 17 game sample size instead of a instead of a one game sample size that makes a big difference and so because of that people are never going to fully grasp this and there will always be an edge DFS will always be a beatable game it's more difficult than it was a few years once ago, once they raise the rate to 800%, it won't be. <laughs> <laughs> and then nobody complains, nobody notices, and they keep jacking it up. But once, once it, once it, like this will sink in more and more, people will understand it, but new players will come in, and a huge chunk of the field will never grasp this. So you'll always be competing against 100, 100 lineups in a tournament. There's going to be 95 people who don't know what game they're playing. They might win sometimes because 
things come together for them. But over time, they're going to lose money. And over time, you're going to make money because you're one of the few people understanding what type of game you're playing. And I think that's both you and I, we're, we're actively striving sort of day in and day out in the stuff that we do in the DFS industry to help the people who are sticking around with us to understand that and gain that edge. Because the more we help our people do that, and the more that everybody else just keeps focusing on players, 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 you know, the more we're able to kind of say, Hey, like, let's build this little army that's going to come in and consistently beat all these other people who are just wondering why they're slowly bleeding out money. And then, as I said, at the top, constantly looking at the roster and saying, Oh man, if I'd gotten this one or two, these one or two pieces different would have gone from cashing to this huge payout. So, okay, I'm on the right track. I just got to keep, you know, digging into all the research, put in another, put in 50 hours next week instead of 40 hours. Right. And then eventually I'll get it down to a point where I get all eight or nine roster spots. Right. And as long as they keep playing that game, there's a big edge for the people who aren't playing that game. But there's also sub games within that game because you focus and I think that this is where the, the the I come across as much more eccentric style of play than you do is that playing small field GPPs and large field GPPs are 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 two total to me they're two totally different games. The strengths and the way that you build lineups are are different. So like when you talk about one one thing that I learned from you for my small field play which I don't focus on it as much on than compared to my large field play is the roster blocks. You were the first person that talked about like that whole, that whole, you had the whole thing with the Browns running backs, right? With Duke Johnson and like, well, they're so cheap. Can I get, how many points can I get for this salary and guarantee myself this block of points that my opponents need to try to piece together in a different manner? And then once I started thinking about the, the concentrated offenses and like, that, that goes to small field when you overstack of like, you don't need to get every piece right. But in large field GPPs, you need to get every, you need, I mean, getting first place in a large field contest. It goes back to your point with playing those bankroll building GPPs, 500 person tournament for $12. If you can't beat 500 entries, you're, you're never like, you're not going to develop the skill in order to build to beat a hundred thousand entries. Like, and to beat five hundred entries is still hard, but you don't have the the nutso, the more what seemingly looks nuts type of strategies aren't even worth playing in the five hundred entry tournaments. So you're not you don't have to. You could progressively up your nutso. Is that a, is that a good way to put it? Like you, you if you could if you could. Get, grasp the, the two or three good like strategic points in a 500 entry contest like do that first and then go okay now that I get that I now I know I need to do like twice as much of that for these larger field contests but you'll need to do that first and I think that that you pl- playing like contests like the wildcat or the game changer and things like that that like that's what that focuses on and a lot of times my strategies come focused on how do you win the slant? How do you win the Millie maker even? I mean, like those types of contests, but the difference is that uh, like another kind of semi disagreement that we have only because I, I listen to your course, uh, the connotation that like you, you mentioned something uh, about the 150 max contests 
and you're like, uh, all these people, all these people, it's not that, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that many people. There's more, there's more casual players playing with single bullets than anything else. In the Millie Maker, they have, 100, they have someone playing 150 lineups, and uh, you have to play their 120th lineup, right? It's, it's, you're trying, you're trying to, you're, I'm, agree with you, I agree with you on principle, but I just don't agree with the messaging of, you're, you're not looking to play the, the optimal lineup, you're actually looking to play lineups that are more likely to win first, or come in way dead last, but the amount of lineups that you play doesn't matter. So people get this loss aversion of, I'm only playing three lineups. I should only play three max contests. It's like, no, well, you could play one lineup into a three max contest. It's a 500, like you said, the $12 single entry, 500. Like, there's a strategy of playing one lineup into that. My my nutso lineup is, you're going to beat my nutso lineup more than anything else. I shouldn't be playing that nutso of a lineup. I should be focusing more on projection than on correlation and leverage. Uh, so you could beat me in that. Now, in the large field stuff, if you're going to play one lineup, don't play one lineup that's like, well, this is the best lineup I could put together for the 500 entry contest. So I'm going to put that one into the large field. I'm going to put the set like, no, those are bad. Those are legitimately bad large field lineups. The pros, quote unquote, that are playing 150 are building 150 nutso lineups. You could build one, you could build one, three, five, ten if you want, but you have to build three nut, you have to build three nutso lineups. Don't, and it doesn't matter that, well, I only have three lineups. They could play the risky stuff because they could play 150. No, their top lineup is fucking nutso. It's not a lineup that they should be playing in the, in the small field GBP either. But it's kind of like the messaging in that point, it made me feel more like you were saying that, well, no, they're playing their first best lineup, their second best lineup, their third best lineup. It's like that term best is in relation to the field size, not in the relation to like, like this is all in a vacuum. Your, your 19 line, you, let, you play 19 lineups. It's always weird when you say 17 prime numbers. Right, you're playing 19 lineups into the Wildcat. And you're like, well, you, know, seven. Hey, you know why that is? Yeah, why it's is because that? Because I like feeling fortressed. And so prime numbers feel unassailable. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? It's like just something inside me. Yeah, it's true. Uh, or, or uncommon numbers like 14 people put, someone wouldn't normally put in 14 lineups, you know? So it's kind of hidden in there between like the 10 and the 15, but 17 lineups, 19 lineups. Uh, so yeah, it's, yeah, but, it but, but you're not to putting with... together, but James, what I'm saying is that when you put together your 19 lineups, you're not like, well, here's my first lineup, which is like a cash game lineup. Here's my second lineup, which is slightly off. Like, no, you're putting in 19 lineups that if I had to tell, ask you and you liked all 19, you had to say, which one's your first one? Well, I wouldn't right, have an answer, a, right. But, you wouldn't have a first. Right, one. right, right. So my point on that was, and I'm going to go back to something you were saying earlier about the, the player blocks. So the idea with the player blocks, um, the example you used was the two Browns running backs, which that was a pretty nutso one because you're taking two running backs from the same team. And I got, I got criticism for that on, on Twitter uh, with a team that finished 10th place in the wildcat that week with two running backs from the same team. Like, and they didn't even hit their like high end score, right? Like you have to do some crazy stuff sometimes and you have to think outside the box, but where the player blocks like got, got super like, concentrated for me was that first year with the bills offense and Josh Allen, and you could get Josh Allen and two receivers 
for 12 to 13 K in salary. And so in a smaller field contest, people would think, well, I want to guess Josh Allen plus this receiver or Josh Allen plus this receiver, but they were already so low owned that it's not like if somebody guessed Josh Allen and Duke Williams, 20% of the field was soaring past you. That was going to be half of 1% of the field soaring past you anyway. So my thought was put all three guys on and just know for it's hard to get points in DFS. Know for sure that no matter what, with this 13K in salary, you're getting 50 to 60 points. There's so much value in that. And so even though you look and see, okay, this individual player on here got three points. And conceptually, you think, well, that that hurt my roster. I could have played things differently and guessed right. You've taken out some guesswork and just guaranteed yourself this block of points. Once you get into larger field contests and you're trying to beat 200,000 rosters, taking that dead spot no longer works. And so you have to say, all right, I'll have 10 Josh Allen plus Duke Williams rosters, 10 Josh Allen plus uh, Zay Jones rosters is who it was at the time, and maybe like three Josh Allen plus Isaiah McKenzie and seven Josh Allen solo rosters. So that's what I mean by the type of roster that somebody can do with their 120th. They're not trying to just take a whole block of players. They're able to say, okay, like when Cubs fan won the Millie Maker, it was like he had A, you talked about game totals moving late in the week. Well, nobody played offenses against Seattle in Seattle back then. That was 2017. And Texans at Seattle, game total went up three points, four points late in the week. Cubs fans texted me on Saturday saying, why is this game total moving up? And I said, I have I have no idea. Right, you don't care. It's moving up. Let's play it. I want to build a bunch of lineups around it. And then he said, if if DeAndre Hopkins fails, who's going to have a big game from the Texans? And I said, Will Fuller. And he said, if Doug Baldwin fails, who's going to have a big game from Seattle? And I said, Paul Richardson or Tyler Lockett. And so he built, I think it was zero DeAndre Hopkins rosters, maybe like three or four DeAndre Hopkins, zero Doug Baldwin, and then just threw all these other guys on on a bunch of different player combos. So if you're building three lineups, the tendency is to think, well, I'll put DeAndre Hopkins, I'll I'll bet on this shootout, I'll put DeAndre Hopkins, Doug Baldwin on. But you have to be able to say, okay, somebody who's building 150 lineups is able to get this combo, the Paul Richardson. No, but and it's Will not, Fuller but that's combo. not true. But that's not true. And so because of that, as a three entry player, I have to be willing to build that type of roster with my three entries. That's what I'm getting at. Right. Is, you have to be willing you know, to but you can but I think phrasing it in the fact of like they they're able to play more lineups than you. It's like, no, like, like Cubs fan could have played, like he chose to play barely any DeAndre Hopkins. He could have played a third of each. Like to me, that's a diversification thing. But if you're like, if for that Bills example, that you're like, okay, well in large field GPP, I can't take the Bills block and have a guy with a three. I'm going to bet on Zay Jones and I'm going to have, I'm going to have my one lineup. I only have one lineup in the millimaker. Right. So I don't even have a chance of diversifying. So how do I take advantage? So like I'm going to play Zay Jones and not, and if it ends up being Duke Williams, oh, well, then I lose. If I have two lineups, I've, I could play both of them. Jay Jones. Like if I have three lineups, I can play all three of them. Jay, like, like you're, it's not a matter of like, well, the more lineups you play, the more, the more ability you have to hedge because you're spending money. For the you're you're at you're actively building more lineups that actually lower your expected value of your portfolio because you're playing guys that are negatively correlated to each other on different rosters. So I think it just feeds into 
what we see every when we get more newer players in NFL DFS. You play 150 lineups. You could obviously cover all your combinations, right? Obviously, uh, <laughs> right? But it to me, I not understanding that the EV of a lineup is independent of one another. It creates these misconceptions of well, I shouldn't be playing 150 max. GPPs without playing 150 lineups because I'm at a disadvantage. It's like once you take the usernames off the lineups, who cares who they are? The reason why you're playing Paul Richardson and the secondary Seahawks wide receivers is because there's 200,000 entries in the contest and there's plenty of crazy people that Paul Richardson's going to still be 1.2% owned. So someone's going to have him. But in your contest of 800 people, Paul Richardson may literally be 0%, may, I mean, could possibly be 0% owned. And if he is owned, maybe he's owned by three rosters. And those three rosters aren't even perfect. So like, even when Paul Richardson has a good game, half of that lineup is screwed up. So a lot of times when you play small field GPPs, I I, I, I relate this to soccer because I typically just play small field in soccer. When some weird center back on, on a slate scores a goal, and I'm playing like like the the 555 200 man, like I I'm an underdog center back nonetheless. Like he's not a, he's literally like that goal goes in, and I know that like my day is not even going to be even decided by that whatsoever. Some fourth wide Khalif Raymond I remember had some like ridiculous game uh, last year or something, four catches for a hundred yards and a touch or something like that. And like if you're playing the Wildcat, if you're playing the game changer, it's like. That's almost like a that 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 that's almost like that kills Titans lineups. Like you're almost like you're you're celebrating like because that touchdown didn't like the, you look at the standings and nothing moves, but in the Millie Maker something moves. So I think that that's that's the perspective that you should have. And it's not a matter of uh, you can't play large field contests with with two lineups because you don't have the ability to take multiple bets. It's like no, it's just like anything else. Take the two best bets, but at least take the bets that give you the shot at winning first place. Take Zay Jones, take take uh, Zay Jones or Duke Williams over over whoever John Brown or whoever it was that season, right? Don't play, don't play in that Texan C- Seattle stack. I only have one lineup. I have to play DeAndre Hopkins or Doug Baldwin. It's like no, you play you play the Cubs fan lineup. You play play one of them. Which one should I play? Fuck it, any one of them. But just play one of those types of lineups if you're going to play one. The biggest edge in DFS, in large field contests, is people that play one lineup and play too safe. Though That's the predominant, all that dead money that you see in that middle range is single bullets, two lineups, six lineups of people that like listened to some podcasts and said, oh, these are the best plays. They maybe made a little stack. And it's like, like, no, no one, and because they didn't hear Paul Richardson's name on a podcast. Like, who would have thought to play 1.2% owned Paul Richardson in their only lineup? Well, that's how you should be thinking. That's, those are the lineups that win. But the problem is, is that it's hard to figure out. It's hard to predict who that guy is. So you just, that's why betting on game environments and go, well, who is that guy in this game environment? Well, there's one of these three people. Well, choose one of those three people. And like my and people look at me and go, well, how do you choose between the three? I said, you know how much time I spend trying to decide between those three? That because what's flip a coin? I mean, like the the projection difference is is so minimal. You need an outlier performance, so you need an eighty to fifty percent range of outcome. Like, like what? 
Uh, yeah, I'm going to spend my entire Wednesday trying to decide between Seahawks fourth and fifth receivers. Like, what? what what's? <laughs> and then, too much and then spend your Sunday, spend your Sunday celebrating that you got it right or kicking yourself for getting it wrong. Right. When, when, you know, there's a thin margin. If we played out the game a hundred times, a, both guys are going to fail 90 times. <laughs> and the 10 times when one of them hits, you know, it's going to be this guy five times, this guy five times. And so, you know, you just happen to be, we're living in a, in a multiverse in which this guy hit, you know, in the, the week we're seeing. And so that mindset of like, Oh man, I spent all Wednesdays, trying to decide between these two guys and I got it right is, is so detrimental to DFS play because it keeps you along that track. Whereas if you understand, Oh, well, okay, this is a toss up, pick one and move on. Then you can assess your process. You can assess your rosters more clearly. Cause you can say before games kick off, how did I do this week? You know, yeah. if you should be able to once, as soon as ownership projections come out, I mean, as soon as ownership shows up, like five minutes after kickoff, you should be able to look through everything and say, okay, I had a good week or I had a bad week. And that's, that's should be very clear to DFS players. And it's not clear. Most people it's once games end, they assess whether they had a good week right, right. or a bad week, but should be as soon as games kick off, you see where players were owned. You assess that against the rosters you built in the tournaments you're in. And you can say, oh, okay, I had a good week or Oh, I made some mistakes. I need to do better next week. Maybe you still make a bunch of money this week, but you made some mistakes. You need to do better, better next week because it's it's a it's a board game. It's a strategy game. That's what DFS is. And so, uh, yeah, obviously a lot of these things were on the same wavelength. Right. And I love. I can't tell you. I, I mean, I took notes last year from stuff you were saying in the OWS contributor chat, just because, as I said, seeing things from a different perspective, even if it's getting to the same middle point as me. I love learning new things, right? And so little light bulbs go on that help me see things, help me, you know, help subscribers see things better. Um, so I massively appreciate it. And that's why, you know, maybe I make it sound like you're an eccentric player. It's because we come at things from opposite ends of the street. Sure, we meet, meet in the middle, but it's so fun for me to like pick up little things and pay attention to the stuff you say and be like, okay, this right here, I can incorporate into my play. This right here fits in this week. And um, or I try something and it's like, well, that that doesn't my mind does not work that way. That didn't work for me. Let me try it's this something that you, so. you may understand. It's one of those things. And there are, I learned from sharper players also of things that they do that I understand intellectually, but can't implement. I can't execute consistently. It's like it's there are certain there are certain things that that with lineup constructions that it's like, oh, it, it's simpler. And th sometimes I. I try to explain it. That's why I try to explain it to people much more on a default level, especially for people that have not skipped that worldview. I think the big, the biggest thing that me and you do, and I of, of course do it more bluntly as a New Yorker, uh, is uh, really kind of just try to try to beat the the I know football worldview out of you, of just like, and if you're gonna mention how much you know football, I I got the belt, and I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready to whip you. Because we ain't talking about that shit anymore, but the uh, that once you once you beat that out, like uh, I make mistakes all all the time. Also, from looking like if you had a choice, because people newer players will come and go. Well, how do you, how do you build lineups for the large field? Like mentioning that before, find the chalkiest players in MLB. I would say, you know. If if you if you didn't want to do anything and you just wanted a good shot at first place, it's not going to happen that often. 
whoever the chalkiest pitcher on the slate, stack five guys against him, right? Because that'll give you the most, that's the biggest leverage point on the slate. It may be very, it's not going to happen that often. And maybe it's not even worth doing. It's going to happen that infrequently. But I'd rather you err on the side of playing the game strategically better and, and being too far on that side. So when people would ask me, like in baseball, like what's the best construction on DraftKings? I go, if you're, if you're having a problem determining what good, there, there could be good 3-3 constructions. There could be good 4-2-1-1 constructions. There, there aren't going to be as many of them, but there will be some profitable ones. There will be some profitable ones that you're just 2-2-2, two, 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 you're not even stacking that much. There aren't going to be many of them, but if you're having a problem being able to determine which of these lineups out of these buckets are profitable, most likely if you just play all five threes, like if you play 100 five threes, you're most likely going to get 70 profitable. Like, like, cause five, there are way more profitable five, three lineups in MLB than there are of, or five X, five of anything, five man stacks of anything else that instead of trying to me to teach you how to look through the individual, just do five X and play. Like if that's your default in football, right? Play a pair a quarterback with two pass catchers and run it back with a player from the other side of the game. I don't care what game it is. I don't care what players it is, but if you just did that you're, and built a bunch of lineups that way, you're more likely to be building better lineups than trying to determine, well, this one doesn't need a run back here and this, well, the running back, like with the Tannehill-Henry combination that is correlated, like you don't have to worry about all those things, right? Like you don't have to like, well, it's, it's like the English language of I before E except after C. It's like, well, hold on a second. What do you mean except after C? So people get bundled too much into the last questions during my pregame show of, well, why did you play this lineup this way and that lineup that way? Don't you say that you should always play these types of stacks? I go, well, for this type of lineup, like this lineup is good without this correlation. And I go, well, can you explain why? And it's like, and I will explain why. But the thing is, if you can't implement that in the next slate, because I'm not going to be there holding your hand, like it would probably just be better off if you just played three plus one lineups for large field GPPs and then just, just not even worry about. And if some other type of lineup wins, like some weird, you know, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, no run back thing, you just raise up your hands and go, I guess I couldn't have possibly constructed that lineup, even though that may have been a profitable lineup. But all I know is that after 17 weeks, if I try to implement trying to find the ones of lineups constructions that are profitable, I'm more likely to make more mistakes. So let me just start with, let me have a good basis of the best constructions and then, then I could learn how to deviate from there. It's like simplify your process and make sure that you're simplify your process in such a way that you have a consistent process that you can follow that maximizes your chances of a first place finish. And then once you've done that, you don't worry about the week to week results or the slate to slate results. You don't worry about, oh, I had rosters that finished dead last this week. That's a fine thing to have rosters that finished dead last. That means that you also are building the types of rosters that can finish dead first, right? So if you can simplify things and say, okay, I'm going to always construct this way, then you can just always construct that way and be fine. And obviously there's there's cases to be made to, like you said, well, why didn't you build this roster this way? Well, in this situation, that's not necessary. So you had, you got to keep building that knowledge and information. But even if you just said, all right, I'm going to just pick one way to build that makes sense mathematically, always stick to it. You're going to be better off than the people who are like, all right, I'm going to 
spend 20 hours every week figuring out who the best plays are and squeezing them onto my roster because just that playing a better roster than other people, four guys from one game, one thing goes right, you get four spots right. You're in such better shape for a first place finish than everybody, the, the 95, 96, 97% of the field that's trying to hammer in the the nine best plays. Uh, but yeah, just just saying, all right, even just this foundation level of strategy play, stick to that you're going to be in better shape than everybody else. And then, but you also have to realize it's a 17 week season and seven, seven, 17 plus the Thanksgiving, maybe playoffs, right? 20 slates. That's three weeks of MLB play, right? Three weeks of NBA play. Like, dude, I could play GPPs for three weeks in NBA and lose every, and, and lose, lose 70% on all, on, on three weeks worth of slates. And I don't even bat an eye because like, like, well, there's still more of the season. There's still more to play. Like, it's like, it's one long poker game. Like in poker, like you don't worry about the single hand. You're going to be playing tons of hands. So I think, uh, lastly, uh, although you call it a one week season, it, the one, the one week season mentality comes down to that. Yes. For the players, for the football players, it's a 17 or, or now 18 week season. Uh, but for your, your profitability, it's all about one week. So if you lose 17 out of 18 weeks, you could you could be a millionaire. I mean, technically, you could have won the Millie Maker the one week that you did win. So it's not about winning every week. I think, uh, JM, I think in NFL DFS, it this this bias happens more than any other sport because of how short the, the season is as a sample size that people, when they go into MLB season, if you play 180 slates of MLB, people aren't as concerned about, well, I played two weeks worth of slates and I'm down money, right? You don't, you just don't, you don't, you don't hear much of that. But in NFL, oh my God, NFL comes week eight, people are ready to jump off the fucking roof. It's like I played eight weeks, I've lost seven out of eight and they're playing primarily GPP. In cash games, if you lost, if you lost seven out of eight weeks, maybe, maybe, there may be a little bit process mistakes. You should come, That's a problem. <laughs> you maybe should be coming closer to 50, 50, if anything. Uh, but, uh, it's week nine. I've lost seven out of eight weeks. I'm, uh, uh, JM, uh, I want my money back. Your, 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 your content sucks, obviously, because I've like, like, dude, like I, I, I tweeted about it. Like, like, dude, last my, my NFL, I, I've only won on, I've, I have, I've played 155 NFL slates. I've only showed a profit on 24 of them. And out of those 24, most of them were only marginally profitable. Meaning I put in 8,000 and I got back 8,100. Woo! You know, like that type of thing. But I won 50,000 twice on two slates. And, and that's where all my, that's, that's where all my money is. That's, that's, that's the whole point. That's what you're playing for. So with, the one week season mentality don't do you think that that is that is another like worldview shift of and i and i make fun of analysts that do it this way also where uh, if you go on twitter i know you you're not you're not tuned in as much on twitter uh and anyone that victory laps any any one that does dfs analysis that victory laps at take right i called that i go so how much money did you win and i go well, I didn't win. So who gives a fuck? Right? Like, like that, like you need to piece all of this shit together. Like, I don't care about one take. Uh, getting more takes right on a single week doesn't matter. I need to get them 
all right on one week. And if I get them all wrong the other 17 weeks, I'm going to put up the middle finger and get the big check in the mail. I mean, like, like to me, especially for NFL players because of that sample size, do you find even in amongst OWS subscribers that that's, that's also part of the mentality, that worldview that you have to change of like, your goal here is not to win 10 out of 17 weeks. It's to win once very bigly out of 17. And who cares what happens the other 16 weeks? Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's a full week in between slates kicking off and you only get 18 slates throughout the season. Get 18, showdowns. 20, whatever showdown. it is. Showdowns. And, and so if you're not, if you go eight weeks, you've only cashed in tournaments once that's 12 and a half percent of your entries you've cashed 12 and a half percent of your weeks you profited right well only 20 percent finish in the the cash line for tournaments you cash the next week you're up to what one out of nine 22 whatever that is so now you're beating the field's odds what what i think is hard for people is a lot of times people will have cashed two out of nine weeks and they'll be like what am i doing wrong it's like well you you put in nine rosters you cash two of them only 20% of the field caches. You're beating the odds. Like the, you're just, it's a very small sample size you're working with. This is one of the things about putting in 10 rosters, 20 rosters, 150 rosters is you are able to increase your sample size, at least in terms of like the number of rosters you're getting in play and the number of opportunities you're giving yourself over those weekends. And so if you're playing one roster or three rosters, you have to understand what you're working with, what you're working with, the sample sizes. Also understand the knowledge you can take from this into other sports where you can play daily. And because 90% of these concepts, you can just keep applying them to whichever sport you're playing and then play daily and increase your sample size that way, increase your income that way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and it's fundamentally psychologically hard to like lose, 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 because you have to wait a week for the next slate. But if you find a new way to assess your process, then you can say, all right, well, it's not about results. It's about, am I giving myself a shot at first place. And as long as that's the case, like you said, better to better to be profitable one week and be a millionaire than to be profitable 10 out of 17 weeks, 10 out of 18 weeks, and be barely profitable on the season. And I think a lot of people are way too content with cashing. And so they build rosters to cash and they give everybody else the, the that are that's thinking about what this game really is. They give them that pathway to the first place finish because you got this big clump of people playing to cash and then you do these couple little things and you just slip past all those people, you know? And as you alluded to, when you're trying to beat 200,000 200, rosters, there's going to be more people slipping past. That first place finish matters even more because it's a million a first and what, like 100,000 a second. And so you have to then slip past the big clump and then also outmaneuver all these other people who have slipped past the big clump. If you're in a 300-person tournament, the big clump is like, 280 rosters, you know, you slip past that, you're already in great shape for a first place finish. And so understanding what you're playing is, is what tournament you're in is huge, but the fundamental thing starting point should be understand what the game of DFS is instead of trying to pick players, understand how to put together rosters toward a first place finish to where you outmaneuver the people you're competing against. Right. Up your nuts. though. up the nuts. though. I think that's what I'm going to title, title this episode up, up the nuts. I like it. I'm there for it. So one week season.com it's it's what, what, what is, I know I pay $29. What's the actual price that is probably still underpriced. It's uh one twenty nine right, for underpriced. 12 months. Uh, and everything's free week one. So if you're still listening to this and you're not an OWS member, 
um, come check us out because everything's free week one. Right, but I, th- I think out of out of all the, the the content that I see around the industry, outside of mine, because I'm going to pat myself on the back first, uh, you talk more about game strategy than than any than anyone else. I mean, ETR does does a bunch also, but and also not to put it past you, also do the NFL Edge with tons of actual football analysis as well, but. Uh, especially on the courses that you have in the marketplace now, and in the in the in the Discord that you have, I I, I find that the conversations are much more intellectual, much more actually about DFS as a game, rather than you know twenty three percent target share. Is this guy going to do well or whatever like that? And it kind of like I don't know. That's I what we're building for. I can't into that. Trying to build great DFS players. That's what we're here for. No, no, I don't want you to build. Keep them out of my contests. (laughs) (laughs) Do you reconcile that fact that do you do like that? That's one thing that like what you're doing is creating better players are from a personal perspective of playing that obviously will negatively benefit be negative to you. Are are you of a similar ilk? I, I, I'm going to assume JM you're, you're from a much more positive perspective perspective than than I am. I'm much more negative. You're the positive end of this would be, well, I'm playing higher stakes contests and I'm helping most of my audience is not playing the wildcat. So I don't have to necessarily worry that, you know, they're gonna take my strategies and beat me with them myself. Uh which which is fine. I understand I understand that mentality. Uh my my negative uh answer to that question is uh most people are stupid even with the content that 95% of people aren't going to do it anyway. So like, what's, what's the point? I'm just going to give out and maybe 5% of people are helped. Uh, 4% of those 5% are not going to implement it well enough. Maybe I create 1% of players that are better than me that end up becoming better than me. But since I'm selling my content, I'm making that in the back end. So like I come from a much, a much more cynical perspective. I don't think you'll, I don't think you'll buy this. I don't think you'll even believe I'm telling the truth. I honestly just like helping people. I <laughs> I genuinely enjoy it. I don't think about how many people are picking it up and how many aren't. Um, I think that you and I both think that people in our world overrate their ability to know things. You and I are both much more interested in the fact that we really know pretty much nothing. And the more we embrace that, the, the more enjoyable things can be. Uh, so I, to me, I kind of focus on what I get joy out of. Also, obviously, there is a business component to where the money in pocket is better than speculative money mm-hmm. in a sense, right? So building OWS and actually building a great product, I know that I have this money coming in every year. That's great. Uh, but I also, like, I get joy out of doing this. It's a lot of fun for me. So, um yeah, definitely different perspectives as would be expected there. But um, I enjoy but, what I do. I enjoy teaching and enter. I enjoy entertaining. Coming from that comedy background, <laughs> I, I feel I feel as if if I played DFS as an unknown, like oh, who's this Blender HD guy and no one knows who they are. They're not on Twitter. Like that's not fun for like, like I need to be on stage somewhere, and if it happens to be just yelling at DFS players or something like that, then uh, to me it's worth the the entertainment, uh, just the the life karma like it's not that i'm helping people it's more the fact of like like what am i going to do like obviously i'm not looking at stats obviously i'm not doing it what am i going to do on a tuesday well i could get on stage and my stage is youtube and there you go and 
And oh, if I'm if you're if you're getting help out of it, then that's kind of like that's a secondary thing. Just that I need something to talk about, and why not at least talk about something that I know than something that I don't know? I can I can buy that, and it's still, but it's part of it's let, like let's get enjoyment out of this. We might as well get enjoyment out of this if we're going to be doing it. <laughs> right, because there's no enjoyment otherwise. It's not enjoyable to lose 17 out of 18 weeks of the year. No, absolutely not. <laughs> One week season, and you have that everything I know about roster construction course that's uh 39 bucks but you have these codes all over the place like if you take this you get a code you have the inner circle which is obviously you do sex acts or something are you doing some type of yeah the inner circle are you are you beating with masks our, and stuff is it <laughs> come listen to our sex acts tonight at, at 7 p.m eastern <laughs> just there's all there's all these like you got you get into one week season it's like well we got this channel and then like well if you want to get into the crypto stuff and it's like this if you use and then you have that's, I said the sex acts because the more that you contribute with like comments and stuff, you get edge points. And to me, that sounds like points. some type of dominatrix type of currency. <laughs> so you could actually participate with comments and con contributions to OWS and get like credits for like the courses and stuff that you offer. Yeah, you get free stuff, you get free, free courses, free subscriptions. So we're trying to make it easy on you. You're trying to, you're giving away too much stuff for too cheaply. <laughs> is that is that a compliment is is that a compliment on your product or is it more of a a insult on your business acumen? i think it's, I think it's a little bit of both <laughs> i'll take them both <laughs> so so go get one week season.com uh the, the, the jm's always in the discord there i'm i'm in the discord i'm in the contribute i, I don't i i have to, I have to weigh because obviously i have my responsibilities to roto grinders so i i can't be in there answering questions to it for another site but i'm but i I, I do searches for my name. You just pop for, in. Right, you I pop, pop in. in once in a while. Typically, every once, once a week, I'll do a search for like Blender and see who's talking shit about me or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so so get that. And as, as always, for the start of the NFL season, if you want to get the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports and get $10 off, I don't give out discounts. I'm not like JM. I, I, I rarely, it's, it's worth this much. And if you don't want to pay it, too bad. Uh, but if you want to get $10 off of uh, the audio course, use the promo code NFL. For the start of the NFL season. So uh, go to theoryofdfs.com. Type in the promo code NFL for $10 off my 15-hour audio DFS masterclass at theoryofdfs.com.